scripture reading this evening is from the book of First uh, Peter in the New Testament, and we're going to read from chapter 1 and verse 22 through to chapter 2 and verse 1. So that's uh, 1 Peter, chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 22. That's page uh, 1218, if you're using the uh, Bibles which are in front of you in the uh, church pews. Let us hear the word of the Lord together. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy and slander of every kind. And there we'll end our reading and uh, let's uh, pray together. Let's all pray. Lord, we give thanks to you for your word. And we ask this evening, Father, that as it is preached and as I seek to explain it, that you will heal what needs to be healed, that you will teach what needs to be taught, that you will challenge what needs to be challenged. Father, we ask that you would help us to understand and we ask that you would help us to apply what you have to say to our lives. We ask these things now in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. whether it was at high school or at church, at some point, all of us here have probably sung verse 3 of the hymn, Onward Christian Soldiers. It goes something like this, and I'm not about to sing. Like a mighty army moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where the saints have trod. We are not divided, all one body we, one in hope and calling, one in charity. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. It's hard not to sing that and wonder that if the church really was an army going off to war, that it would very soon be hopelessly split and divided and defeat would follow very quickly. Certainly, if victory for the church depends on unity and being one in a charity or love, then it's safe to say that we are all in trouble. It was reflecting on this uh, exact hymn that Billy Graham once said that 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning was the most segregated hour in America because of the separation and the segregation and lack of love that was shown between black and white churches. And even if you're in the same church, and of the same race as someone. We all know what it's like to be three metres away from someone physically, but yet feel 3,000 miles away relationally and emotionally and spiritually. And so this command here, right in the middle of our text of Peter's, to love one another, there in verse 22, is really highly relevant to us as individuals and highly relevant to the church as well. 
Peter was writing to a scattered group of host churches in modern-day northern Turkey. They were on the fringes of the Roman Empire even then. Although at this time they were not being overtly persecuted, the temperature for them was definitely beginning to rise. They were being discriminated against at work. They were being misunderstood by society at large. And their allegiance to Jesus of Nazareth was an object of ridicule. In many ways, not a million miles removed from the kind of atmosphere of Edinburgh or London where we live and work and worship. And so the uh, Apostle Peter, who uh, knew Jesus well, um, writes to them to tell them to love one another. Evidently, he thinks that not only is uh, love a a cardinal um, Christian virtue, but um, it's also what a pressurized church really needs to hear about, to love one another, to have good relationships, to be supporting one another in prayer, to be weeding out things like gossip and slander. And I think this need for internal cohesion in the church that he wrote to probably explains just the sheer number of times that Peter emphasizes the importance of love in this letter. So then, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. 3 verse 8. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. 4.8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. 5.14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. It's love, love, love. That's what Peter thinks that they need to hear in this pressurized environment. It's worth us, of course, attempting to define what Christian love is. And there I think we might say that it's treating one another in a way that reflects God's character. It is thinking about God's character and about what God is like, and then reflecting that, if you like, in our relationships with each other as Christian believers. So, the fact that God is truth and doesn't lie means that we don't lie to each other, but tell the truth instead. The fact that God is kind to us, means that we are kind to one another. The fact that God is forgiving and forgives us, means that we manifest his forgiveness in the church. You see, we we reflect God's nature, we reflect what God is like, in our relationships with each other. That's Christian love, and it's quite different from what the world generally means by love. One other definition of of love that's a favourite of mine is the uh, Puritan writer who said that love is taking honey to a bee with no wings. Love is taking honey to a bee with no wings. I really like that. Love is seeing a need that a fellow brother or sister has and then doing what you can to meet it. There are also a couple of dangers of Christian love as well that I think we need to mention. One is exploitation. That is, that some people can take advantage of others by exploiting the fact that they're seeking to live a life that's characterized by love and generosity. They maybe try and uh, smother others. They maybe try and be too demanding. They expect uh, maybe all kinds of emotional or material support and they get angry or confused when it's not forthcoming. 
One other danger inherent in Christian love is insincerity. We love because we know what we need to do in order to fit in socially. We know that we're all meant to love one another, so we just play act it. We put on a good show and we play the role, but we're actually only putting up a loving front. There is no reality under it. Secretly, the only reason that we look like we're loving people is because we are good actors, not because we have the real spirit of Jesus in our hearts. And I think here Peter recognises the dangers of both of these. I wonder if you notice the fact, as we read it, that he says that we're to have sincere love. The literal word means not faked, not play-acted, or not put on. And then it says we're to love one another deeply. The word means extensively, or continuously, or with perseverance, not just when it helps us, or it benefits us. You see, his concern here is that Christians are honest and real and loving in how they conduct themselves with one another. They're not to steal from the bee with no wings just because she can't fly. And they're certainly not to give her the impression that that they are bringing her honey and then not deliver. You see, Christian love is nothing if it's not genuine. So what I'd like to do for the next few minutes here is uh, really just give you a reminder and just give three very simple reasons from what Peter says here about why Christians, why we, are to love one another. And the first of those is that he says, love one another because you have a new life. We can see this in verse 22. Here, Peter's uh, summarizing the previous section, and he says that since Christians have purified themselves by obeying the truth, they ought to love one another. We can see immediately in this verse that Peter puts the emphasis on the way that we purify ourselves. He's saying that there's a sense that in in the Christian life where we consciously have to put off the old life and purify ourselves by putting on an entirely new life. I think he expands on this in chapter 2 verse 1 where he says that we should be therefore getting rid of things like malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and instead replacing those, those things with love for other people in the church. Maybe just as you would take off old, dirty, sweaty clothes on a hot day and so put on clean ones, Christians are to purify themselves by taking off old habits and replacing them with new modes and patterns of behaviour. And this, of course, is exactly what we see elsewhere in the New Testament. Christians are commanded on several occasions to purify themselves. James chapter 4, verse 8. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 1 John 3, verse 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. I suspect that most of you here are probably already fed up with talk about the Da Vinci Code. And it is a terrible film. So if you've not seen it, then uh, don't go out and see it now. Wait till it comes out on a DVD or something. But one thing it does have is an excellent villain in the albino monk Silas, who is trying to atone for his previous life by his a devotion to the religious order, Opus Dei. However, I think that if Silas were to come in and see me for some counselling, we would have a number of very serious issues to talk about as regards his Christian devotion. 
In fact, the first thing I'd probably say to him is that if he would like to come back a, a, a different day, he could make an a, appointment to see the senior minister instead. <laughs> but if he insisted on talking to me, then I think there are at least two issues that I would like to explore with him. The first would be his understanding of what it means to purify oneself as a Christian. In the film, you see, we see Silas whipping himself and lacerating his body and to try and purify himself from his previous sins. However, he and some of us need to understand that purification here doesn't mean undergoing certain rituals to make you holy or beating yourself up like he was doing. Notice instead that it says that the way that we purify ourselves is by obeying the truth. This means that purifying ourselves has to do with bringing our lives into line with the morality that Christ demands of his followers. It means absorbing the word, taking its principles on board, becoming more mature as a Christian. Um, Where it tells us to stop gossiping, we stop gossiping. Where it tells us to stop sponging off others and get a job, then we do that, and so on. God purifies us through his word. Then the other thing I would like to talk to Silas about would be the nasty habit that he has of killing people. You see, evidently, somewhere along the line, forgot to tell Silas that Christians have purified themselves through their obedience to the truth for the purpose of brotherly love. You see, the purpose of our purified new lives is that we would love one another. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the the truth um, for the purpose of sincere love for your brothers is a more literal rendering of it there. Now, of course, very few of us in our religious devotion are going to be tempted to kill people in the service of God, although that hasn't always been the case throughout church history. However, we may well be tempted, even in the local fellowship of God's people, to kill enthusiasm, to kill ideas, to kill reputations, to kill joy, to shoot down others, and to strangle Christian love. And here, Peter is telling us that those kinds of things are completely antithetical to the new life that we have as Christian believers. We have put all those kinds of things behind us, We should love one another because we've purified ourselves. We have new life. We've taken off the old and have put on the new. Therefore, we should live in the light of that new reality. So first of all then, he's saying, love one another because you have a new life. Number two then, love one another because you're part of a new family. We can see this in verse 23. There he says that Christians should love one another because they've been born again. Christians don't just love because they've purified themselves, but they love one another because God has supernaturally made them part of his family. You've been born again, he says, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. In John chapter 3, as you probably know, we are told that human beings are born again by the Holy Spirit working in their hearts to bring them to new spiritual life. Here, though, in 1 Peter, we get a slightly different angle, and we are told that it's God's word that births people into God's family. The truth, of of course, is that it's not either or, but it's both. And as the 
Bible is preached, either one-to-one or in small groups, or even from the front of the church like this. It's the Holy Spirit that takes the word and applies it to people's souls and drives it deep into their consciousness to bring about new birth into God's family. Whereas the human sperm that brings about physical human families normally lasts somewhere between 48 and 72 hours. Ours, the seed that brings about God's spiritual family, the word of God, is alive and permanent and potent and remains forever. It is the power to conceive a spiritual fetus and bring it to a term as a new member of the family of God in the world. A family that Jesus said would be characterized by love. We need to throw in here this point that of course one of the implications of this is that the The Bible must always be at the centre of our efforts to tell people about Jesus, whether it's Christianity Explored or a guest service or one of our regular Sunday services here. Christian concerts and drama and and social events are, are all great things and they all have their place and the church where I'm going to work has a whole array of quiz nights and special um, lectures and um, shows movies as well. But it is only as the word is presented and explained that people will be born again into God's family. And so uh, the preaching of the word and sharing the word with one another must always be the central heartbeat of what we do. At the end of my first year in the USA, a group of seven or so guys who I knew from my course decided that they were going to live together in what they called an intentional Christian community. So they rented a large house in a poor neighborhood in one of the local towns, and they all moved in together. The idea was that they would pray together as a host every day, that they would be active in meeting uh, social needs and in evangelizing the surrounding area, and that they would hold each other accountable to a standard of personal holiness and devotion in a covenant that they had all drawn up together. Now, I knew most of these guys well. Five of them were actually really cool. The kind of guys that I would go hiking with and hang out with at the weekends. Admittedly, the other two were kind of out there, but they were um, basically okay as well. It wasn't what I'd always thought, that it was always people on the fringes of the Christian church, kind of touchy-feely wannabe hippies that uh, were into this kind of thing. These were people just like me. Um, One of them, who I knew quite well from uh, going hiking together, had even done a lot of thinking and research on this. He had visited other communities um, and had thought a lot about conflict resolution and even how married people with uh, children and people earning uh, different salaries might be able to live together in Christian communities that even held possessions in common. Uh, To be honest... Um, I was unsure about how I felt about their project. What I couldn't deny, though, is that that they were trying to be radical and meaningful about how they went about obeying this command to love one another as part of God's family. So then, what was my problem? I mean, perish the thought that loving one another might actually mean sharing things and getting involved in the nitty-gritty of each other's lives. I mean... God forbid that you should actually have to get on with with people who are different from you and interact with them in a way that was likely to cost you and change your life. My contention that this just wasn't practical proved wrong when they actually tried it and it worked. 
my hunch that uh, this was just fuel for spiritual pride on their part was almost so ungodly that I'm very glad now I kept quiet about it. And the argument that I was British and British people need their personal space just frankly sounded lame after a little while. But they did it. They kept short accounts with one another. They knew each other so well that they were able to practically care for one another and meet each other's needs. They prayed together. They served together for the whole year. And I think probably learned a lot more about loving one another than I probably did in my single room on my own reading my Greek New Testament. And I'm certainly not advocating a commune for everyone here at Charlotte Chapel. Although if you are in YPM or you're a student and you wanted to give this a go, then I certainly wouldn't try and talk you out of it as I once would have done. It certainly would be a radical way, wouldn't it, of putting into practice what the New Testament says here about loving one another, which probably has a whole lot more to do with living in close proximity to each each other than our modern compartmentalised nuclear lifestyles allow. However, when you see something like that, it does remind you of how far short our expressions of love in the church often fall and how we often settle for so much less than what actually could be. The principles, you see, I think, remain the same. Real involvement with each other's lives, not just on a superficial level, but on a deep level. Spiritual accountability, meaningful prayer together, seeing practical needs and meeting them, commitment to serving the poor, sharing, being so close to people different from you that it's actually uncomfortable. I think you all get the point. You see, if you're a Christian, then you really are part of a new family. Therefore, we ought to love one another. Who knows, our spiritual family might actually become our real family. So then, love one another because you have a new life. Love one another because you're part of a new family. Thirdly and finally, love one another because you are investing in a new kingdom. And I think this is the point of that quotation from the Old Testament that we can see there, quoted in verses 24 to 25. You see, there's lots of things like this in the New Testament that must have been really obvious to Peter's original readers just because they were brought up with it. But that we have to do some uh, spade work to try and understand. And this is one of them, I think. Unfortunately, the the fact is that uh, me and you just don't know our Old Testaments as well as the average Jewish Christian would have done in the first century. But what any Jewish Christian from the first century would have known immediately is that this is a more or less direct, straight quotation from the prophecy of Isaiah. It was actually from Isaiah 40, which was one of the most well-known and climactic passages in that whole book writing to the nation of Israel after she'd been carried into exile in Babylon, Isaiah is reminding God's people here that that the grass withers on a hot day and the flowers fall off their stems, but the promises of God's word for ultimate deliverance, for return from exile, stand steadfast and secure and sure. That's what Isaiah was saying here. So the relevance for Peter's readers in the first century would have been immediately obvious to them. Just like Israel in Isaiah's day, Peter's readers here were also in exile. They're even referred to as exiles in this very letter of one Peter. Many of them were probably in physical exile, having been evicted from Rome when Claudius expelled all the Jews in about 50 AD. 
But more significantly than that, they were in spiritual exile because they were followers of Jesus Christ and were therefore aliens and strangers and pilgrims as they lived out their Christian lives in a less than sympathetic environment. So these verses in their original context were a prophecy of hope, just as Babylon was a piece of grass that would wither and die, and even its glory was as a flower that was here one day and then gone the next. The end of the exile that God had promised to his people was definitely going to come about. And of course it doesn't really matter which great world empire this prophecy is talking about. To the Christians of the first century and their foxholes in Asia Minor, it was the might and, in, and intimidating power of imperial Rome that would have sent a chill down their spines. And so this quotation would have served to have reminded them that even mighty Rome was, was really like a garden in a, a drought, and that God's promise of a new and lasting kingdom instead was secure. And then we can see more precisely the identity of this kingdom from the way that Peter actually alters this quotation from its original context in Isaiah and the way that it's used here. Whereas in the original in Isaiah, if you want to look at it when you go home, it says, the word of our God stands forever. Peter changes that and inserts a reference to Jesus here and says the word of the Lord stands forever. The Lord, of course, in the New Testament way of referring to Jesus. And what he's actually saying with that is quite revolutionary. Not only does he identify Jesus as the Lord with the God of the Old Testament, thereby proving Jesus' divinity, but he um, also says that this promised hope this word of God to ancient Israel about the end of the exile, this word of deliverance for God's faithful people in any age, has come about through the preaching and person and the gospel and, in short, the kingdom of one Jesus of Nazareth. And this is the word that was preached to you, he says. You see, so what we really have here is a tale of two kingdoms. There are two kingdoms at work in the world. On the one hand are the kingdoms of men that look impressive just like gaudy flowers, but are actually short-lived and fade very quickly. The problem is, you see, that it's very easy for us to be impressed with their power and glory and get, and get taken in. And then, in contrast to that, there's the kingdom of God, ushered in by Jesus Christ, that is characterized by love. This kingdom looks unimpressive, and we are tempted to ignore it and think that it's weak and insignificant and lose our confidence in it. However, it's actually eternal and where ultimate reality really lies. One of my favourite films is the film Gladiator. And as far as I can see, it is the last of those great epic films before computerised battle sequences became the norm and they all went down in quality. The epic scene in Gladiator, of course, is right at the beginning of the film and you see uh, Maximus, then as a Roman general, marshalling his uh, troops. And there's one thing that he says to them several times to um, motivate them to fight on the part of Rome. I wonder if you can remember what it is. It becomes a refrain throughout the film. What you do in this life echoes in eternity. What you do in this life echoes in eternity. The irony, of course, is that there he's motivating his soldiers to fight on behalf of imperial Rome, precisely the glory that will wither and, and, and um, fade like weeds in a garden, according to God's word. But, but Peter, in contrast, is motivating the Christian soldiers of Asia Minor to be an army of love, 
And he knows for sure that what they do really does echo in eternity. Where I'll be working at Canary Wharf, it's all about investments. Whether you're investing in stocks and shares or funds or derivatives or emerging markets and all the other terms I'm learning about that I don't really understand yet. It's all about investing money and expanding your business portfolio. However, I've yet to hear anyone there talk about investing in an eternal kingdom by loving one another. And yet, here, we are told that really is the wisest investment to make. Love one another. Invest in the kingdom of God. Watch the tone of your voice and how you speak to one another. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Be gentle. Don't promise. And then not follow through. Because what you do now echoes in eternity. You see, those things are not just part of this world, which will crumble and fall. They are actions which are are quite literally out of this world. They are part of the world to come, which has already started now in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and is going from strength to strength. Here we're told, love one another, because you're investing in a new kingdom. So then, three simple reasons why we should love one another. We have a new life, we've been born into a new family, and then thirdly, we're investing in a new and lasting kingdom. One final thing to note, how do all these things come about? Look at the last line there of chapter 1, and this is the word that was preached to you. As the message of Jesus is preached, God uses that for people to be born again into a new family. They purify themselves also by obeying the truth, The kingdom of God goes globally, and then they love one another. You see, ultimately, preaching is important, because preaching brings about love. And as I have been ordained today, that really is what it is all about. Please do pray for me, that I would love the Lord more and more. And please pray that as I would preach, that it would bring about love. The love of Jesus himself in in us, and um, spilling over into others who desperately need it. Let's pray together.